1: Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Verisage Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we are doing innovation beyond technology. Technology is important, but it's only a small part of innovation. This show is dedicated to... (laughs) I love this, Ed. Innovating is hard work and not for everyone because it requires deeper thinking than usual. If you believe you can attain this level of thinking, you are invited to listen to this show. I'm I'm wondering what you say to people who don't believe that.
2: Well, there are some people too. who don't, Ron. It's, that's why it's an invitation. Yeah, I, just, just a quick side note here. I, I, one of the things I have, uh, I'll call it a discovery, and we'll get to that in just a second, is that whenever I write, Something for whether it's for this show or for whether it's a, a session that I'm doing at a conference, uh, or even sometimes it's a, to, an invitation to a meeting. I always use a a technique that I learned by, from Peter Block, which is to make something an invitation, truly an invitation to extend out to say, "Hey, listen, you're in, this is you're invited to do this," right? And but he, one of the things that he says is, is you should always state what the possibility of the meeting is also state what the hazards are what what could get in the way and then and also structure it in such a way so that the per, the person who is responding is actively engaging in other words they have to make an active decision in order to participate and what i've discovered in using this process is that people who actually read the descriptions which is few by the way so just so you know, the, there's the right, first caveat yeah. right that, that people who do read the descriptions are usually intrigued by them, and secondly, they're more active participants because they know that hey, this session is going to be a, a, about some ideas and not just about something that I'm just going to you know sit here like a, a lump on a log, a, a log, and 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 be um, be 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 talked to. So.
1: Yeah, no, it works very well, actually. I think it's a very effective way to write uh, an outline for a presentation or a course or something like that, because you're right, it does spark interest. So yep. uh, it's good. And, and I love this. I just love this title anyway Innovation Beyond Technology, because I remember when we had Greg LaFollette on and the other um, gentleman from the ICPA, we asked them, What does innovation mean to you?
3: <laughs>
1: right. And obviously, it goes way beyond just talking about technology. And so tell me this, how do you start this presentation? You have a very interesting way of beginning this presentation.
2: <laughs> I do, yeah. And and I, I've used this particular slide in other presentations, but I found that this slide works best uh, for this one as a, as a lead off. And it's a it's a quote from a, a French philosopher named uh, Michel de Montaigne, who I, I I can't say that I've I've read everything by the guy. In fact, I've read very limited stuff by the guy. But I I dis- discovered him, and became intrigued by him because he's one of these guys. Ron, he's like a meta philosopher. Right. He studied like the philosophy of philosophy, the philosophy, which, yeah, yeah, right, which just you know just makes him freak out at a slightly higher level than the rest of us, right? Yeah, that's we're we're all freaking out. That's really the reality of the situation. But the people who study, a philo- study philosophy freak out at a higher level, and people who study metaphilosophy, well, they freak out at an even higher <laughs> level, right? And this poor guy on his deathbed. Right after, after dedicating his entire life to, to the study of philosophy, and this is one of those epigrams. I think we might have, I might have talked about this on our, our uh, epitaph show that we did a long time ago, Famous mm-hmm. Last Words. Mm-hmm. And he, he said this. He said, que sais-je, which in French means, what do I know? <laughs> 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 and it's just a little bit of a warning to not only the audience run, but in a sense, myself to, 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 to say, Hey, you're about to present this, this stuff about innovation to people, but you know, what, what do I really know? What are there's, the older I get, the more I realize I know less than I thought I did every year. That's, that's kind of like the, I don't know what point I crossed that threshold. Uh, you know, at some point, you know, you know, when you're 17, you think you know everything. Uh, and then, then you realize you know a little bit less and less and less, and then every year it just gets worse for me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I, I think that's right. What's that great line from the Hollywood mogul? Uh, nobody knows nothing. <laughs> you know, in other yeah. words, we don't know what movies are going to be a hit. We don't, you know, we know nothing yep. about how these. How the audience is going to react to what we do? So,
2: yeah, yeah, and and Yogi Berra's famous famous quip about predictions are difficult to make, especially about the future.
1: (laughs) But when you so you start off with a question, you say, "What do you think of when I say innovation?" What 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 do most people say to that?
2: Almost always, it is some kind of technology. They're thinking iPhone, they're thinking iPad, they're thinking i-something or other, or it was some, the internet as an innovation. And most of us, I think when push comes to shove, if we think about innovation, at least in the context that you and I deal with it, which is business, right? Almost always, it, 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 it surrounds the notion of some technology, some kind of technology that goes into place. And I I'm, I'm really indebted actually to for to, to the delivery of this session to my colleague at Sage, Jennifer Warwa, who's SVP of like partners now. She's like SVP of everything. I think we all report to Jennifer, Ron is the right. reality of the situation. <laughs> which is great cuz Jennifer's a terrific person, but she she asked me to deliver this session that she had came, come up with the title called "Innovation Beyond Technology," and I think it was at a CPA show in in New York or Long Island. If I if I'm not mistaken, might have been New Jersey, and it was kind of this last minute thing. She she couldn't make it. Would I substitute for her? And she said, and, and I said yes. And she said no. Don't worry, but the slides are all built. So she sent me so sent me her slides. And I don't know if you've ever tried to do this, Ron. Have you ever tried to do a presentation of somebody else's slides?
1: Oh yeah, it can't be done.
2: No, right. Can't not, be, effectively, so, well, not effectively. Not effectively. So I, so I took one look at it and I said, thanks, this is great. I appreciate it. And then I proceeded to change just about everything, <laughs> right? Um, with the exception of this opening, because I thought that this was a pretty clever opening that she had, which is to, to talk about what innovation meant and she she shows a series of products right one after the next after the next and the, the one i like and I'll, I'll i'll include this in the show notes is this and i wish i had this when i had you know that my two kids at the same time a little stroller and there's a skateboard like stuck to the one wheel of the stroller where the where the where the 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 older child is riding on the skateboard next to the stroller right i love and, that <laughs> oh my god it's just like i'm oh why didn't i not have this because this would <laughs> like I probably have, have a better relationship with my son if I did not, you know.
1: <laughs> that that has to be a concept out of Ido, I would think, right? The design for uh, yeah. something like they do, right?
2: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, it's, and it's a great idea. And of course, you know, the big buzzwords in technology today is cloud, cloud. This, you know, and I, I, I joke when I do this session that that long, probably six or seven years ago when that when that that cloud term started to to gain prevalence i i I came up with this notion that it, you know i was I was struggling to wrap my brain around what the, what did this meant you know what did it mean and then finally it just occurred to me that cloud is just a, a term for on the internet that's, <laughs> what, that's all it really means it's
1: <laughs> we've kind of been in the cloud on a lot of plate in a lot of places right for what yeah. going on twenty years I mean online banking and all sorts of stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean, it just means available on the internet, right? And so I was like, okay, I get that. And the cloud, I don't know if you remember this, but where this came from, this term cloud, was from all of these detailed network specification diagrams that these propeller heads used to, to churn out for us. And whenever they wanted to represent something that they didn't want to explain to non-technical people, Right. They would just put like this little cloud. It's just Don't worry about it. It just goes to the cloud. Um. <laughs> it just and don't worry. <laughs> it goes to this up in the sky and then it comes down. Of course, the irony, Ron, now is I don't know if you're aware of this, but most of the cloud is in the desert now. Did you know that?
1: Sure. Sure. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yep.
2: So it's kind of weird. Anyway, so that's kind of the opening is to is to talk to people about hey, when we think of innovation, we get stuck in this rut of thinking about innovation almost always as a technology play, and that's really not
1: necessarily the case. Right, and and you know this was exposed to me. Ed. I mean, when you read Drucker, you you just realize what an interdependent system a business is, and it relies on on many different components. And that's really one of my, I think, first uh, real introductions to the idea that innovate. He wrote a great book called Innovation and Entrepreneurship. That innovation was just far beyond just technology. Even says in there that it's not really just technology at all. It can be. Design it can be marketing it can be a whole host of other things pricing the, the term business model wasn't thrown around when he wrote this book in 1985 but that's what he was talking about how you create value how you capture value so it's far more than just technology
2: right and and I think that there's really three terms that that sometimes get intermingled and because of the intermingling is I think one of the reasons why the that that innovation is thought of as technology and the ter- the terms that i've heard is discovery invention and innovation mm-hmm. right and to me to me a discovery is something that has already existed but we just n- have never found it right we right. discover we discover new el- el- elements or actually mm-hmm. we did and now in a sense we almost invent new elements because we have to you know f- bombard them and force new new levels of neurons and protons and whatever to to come about. But before that, we would discover a new element. We might discover a new species. The species already exists, right? We might discover a new mathematical theorem. We might discover a new planet. It always was. We just didn't see it. So that's kind of, that's a little bit the easy one. Then the next thing is invention, which is the creation of something new that didn't exist previously. Right? right, and I would say I would say that like, while fire was a discovery, an invention was the ability to control it, right? Putting the rocks around a a circle and and making sure that you control that fire. So that's an innovation, I think, right? A new idea, right? Um, and then of course, an innovation is oftentimes defined as the enhancement of an invention. But I actually kind of like the definition that's that's used by uh, Matt ridley in his book i think rational optimist although I'm, I'm sure he used it before but he he uses the term innovation is ideas having sex
1: <laughs> exactly i love that
2: <laughs> and i i really like that kind of concept and it you know it's not just the, it's not purely the the, the sexual uh, conversation it's, it's it's it really is the creation of something new from more than one idea.
1: Right. You know, Drucker says, cause he is talking in this book about both innovation and entrepreneurship and they're kind of in- intermingled obviously, but he says management is the new technology that's making the American economy into an entrepreneurial economy. Indeed, even an entrepreneurial society. And I thought that was interesting that he called management a new technology. In 1985? Yes. This was, fun. okay. So, and he basically said that innovation was where you create new demand. It was really a, a reformulation of, you know, of Say's Law, supply creates demand. He mm-hmm. said, because if, you know, an entrepreneur, sure, you can own a restaurant, you can open, open a second restaurant, but you're not really creating any more new demand. Really, entrepreneurs create new demand for something. Right. And I thought right. that was kind of an interesting way to frame it as well,
2: yeah, boy, that's another whole show, isn't it, Ron Saysloft? God, to, <laughs> it is
1: did, do,
2: we didn't we do something for Tom Hood on that years ago where we tried to like talk it was a, like a we, second life thing
1: we did. we and we did it in Second life. and it was, yeah, it was a webinar in Second Life. And it was um actually, why something like why we're supply side economists or something like that. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun.
2: It was like a precursor to the radio show. It really yeah. was.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, long before. Uh, well, it's funny, you know, because Robert Chelino, our executive producer, and you're going to remember this. He actually, I actually talked to him for the first time on April Fool's Day from a hotel. I believe it was in Washington, D.C. I might have been in Maryland. I, I think D.C. And you know what we were doing? We were doing that April Fool's webinar that you, me, and Tom Hood did. No way, on, really? On, I, I kid you not, on Taylorism. Uh-huh. And then what was our first radio show? On Taylorism, yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So talk about coincidences. Well, Ed, this yeah. is great. And when we come back, I know we're going to jump into a significant aspect of innovation beyond technology, which, of course, is the business model. But folks, in the meantime, we'd like to remind you, if you want to get a hold of Ed or myself, you can send us an email at asktsoe at We will post full show notes at thesoulofenterprise.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results.
4: Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN.
0: Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results.
1: Well, welcome back, everybody. We're doing innovation beyond technology. And, Ed, one of the slides that you put up is a, is a standard in all of our presentations when we talk about this topic. And that's the line from Andy Grove. And I believe he said this in his book, Only the Paranoid Survive. Correct. So, is that right? So what, yeah. what's he say?
2: Uh, disruptive threats come inherently not from new technology, but from new business models. And yeah, they, I did look this up. It is in his book. Uh, the uh, now I can't remember the name of the book, but uh, he, only the paranoid survive. All the Paranoid survive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and look, you would think that somebody of this stature, Andy Grove, of course, is a founder of Intel. I mean, one of the the one the, them, the yep. best one of the best technologies companies that, that has ever existed, right? and you would think that he would know something a little bit about innovation and a little bit about a technology and when he says that it's really more about business models th- than it is about technology then th- we've got to we've got to listen right because i th- i think that he has instant street cred from that perspective <laughs> you know and of, and of course the example i usually give here there's a couple different ones you can talk about but the the the, the I and I think I first heard this from you. The whole you know Napster when when the original Napster came out. And I always go back to that. And people like, hey, does everybody remember the original Napster? And everybody puts their hand up. It's like yeah, it's like a, <laughs> yes, unlimited music for free. It was really like this amazing thing. Uh, and of course, what happened is the 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 recording industry saw this and and said, hey, listen, we have a crime wave. Right. <laughs> they they pursued this. They started suing 17-year-old kids. They're working out of their college dorms. You know, there was, you know, the grandmother who who didn't even know that the server was located in her basement because that's where the grandson put it, was, you know, arrested. <laughs> it was just like this horrible, horrible situation because they thought they had a crime wave problem. And really, you know, when, when there's, there's millions of people wanting billions of your products, it, it's clear that you don't have a Uh, A a crime wave, you have a a business model problem. And the business model, of course, was, hey, listen, we're going to force you to buy the CD with the 15 crappy songs on it and the one you like. And what Steve Jobs did when they released iTunes and the iPod was say, no, 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 we'll sell you you the one song you want for a dollar. How's that sound? And we're like, yep. yeah, we'd absolutely do that for sure. We'll do that definitely, you know. And there was so there was there was not a problem with that. In other words, it wasn't that people wanted to steal music; they just didn't want the model that was out there, which was why do I have to plunk down twenty bucks for the songs I don't want?
1: Right. So, and now you're even seeing it morph again into streaming services, mm-hmm. right? So there there's another business model change. What's interesting ed is back to Drucker in this book because this was fascinating too. He said a lot of innovations don't come from, you know, the lone scientist tinkering in the garage. They they come from lay people who have a better understanding of the customer. And he gives the right. example of Thomas Watson senior and junior, you know, that that brought computers to the, the marketplace, DuPont, and what mm-hmm. they did especially with nylon. You know, hosiery, and then it became their biggest actual profitable segment for nylon was tires, which they did not originally intend. But then he talks about Boeing, and Boeing was a marketing company, and I mean, you know, run by marketers, and they understood what what the jet engine meant for the average consumer. It it wasn't the people who came up with the jet engine or avion, avionics theory; it was mm. it was marketing people. Who understood what it took to get people to, you know, step on an airplane? He said successful innovations are not risk focused, but but they're opportunity focused, and right. I thought that was a very interesting distinction. And, and of course, pr- probably the greatest—I mean, the Napster is a great example. You can look at Craigslist, right, and what it did to newspaper—you know, taking out their classified revenue. I mean, there's lots of examples of this. Um, but before we go any further. What is a business model? How do you define a business model?
2: Well, you and I have come to, I think, a common understanding of business model, and we might have slight variation, but I, you know, I think the, the business model is how does how does your organization create value for, and then capture value from your customers. That's probably the simplest way to, to to strike it i've i've also heard people add it in there and then you know delivery, delivery. or implementation right right but I, you know i think i think i think that i think they, that if you, you really can summarize both both it as well that's part of creation of value to your delivery mechanism so if you really want to keep it simple how do you how do you create value for and then capture that value from your customer that's to me that's
1: what a business model is Right. And I know we did a whole show on innovating the business model and and we will link link to that in the show notes. But I just want to add something that I've learned studying this issue is, and I can't find an exception to this, anytime you see a business model change, like a Napster, like a Craigslist or whatever, you also see a pricing change. That Mm -hmm. capturing portion of that definition, you know, the capturing means the pricing and I can't find an exception where you don't see the pricing strategy and pricing model change. And I would add one more thing, LZ, that I'm, I'm beginning to see as well when you look at business model changes throughout history. What you measure changes. Mm. And, and I think that's really, really important because if you want new behaviors and you stick with old measurements, guess what you're going to get? I mean, isn't this one of the problems we see with firms, professional firms, trying to move away from uh, hourly billing, but yet they still keep their time sheets? Right, because they're, they they're, they're still measuring the wrong thing. So, can they ever really be truly effective at yeah. doing this new thing? And I don't. I think yeah. the answer is emphatically no. Yeah, interesting.
2: Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I hadn't put that measurement in place. I had heard the pricing thing because, it was like, one of the the examples that we used to use or i used to use anyway was the, the 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 change in the business model in in manhattan in the 1940s of go moving to slice pizza
1: exactly i i think about that all the time
2: <laughs> yeah. right yeah yeah because i mean that, that the you know man this is p- pizza in italian means pie so pizza pie is redundant so don't say pizza pie anymore <laughs> right and and the but this notion like there's there's still still or restaurants in Little Italy downtown Manhattan—they're like no slices. You know, they're the purists. They're like <laughs> you can only, only buy by the pie, not by the slice. Right. So, but that was a business model change.
1: So it was, and and you know when you talk about ideas having sex, I mean, I think a great example of this, and we've been both listening to the recent uh, Econ talk podcast with Russ Roberts, and they're talking to a Silicon Valley kind of guru philosopher. And they're talking about Uber and boy, just all of the things that had to come together to make Uber work is, is just an amazing list.
2: Yeah, Tim O'Reilly is the guy's name and he's he's been been like I think he coined some of the, ter- the terms that we use on a daily basis about the 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 internet and um, I think like 2.0, 3.0, I forget what his site is is, is is I think it's either called 2.0 or 3.0 or something like that. But but yeah, the all of the stuff that surrounds Uber and Uber is a great example of just not invention, but innovation. All of the technology for Uber was around for several years before Uber put it all together. You know, the, 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 the cell phone and each of the drivers, both the driver and the customer. And then, of course, you you marry that together with, with a, you know, you don't even have to take your credit card out. Forget about Apple Pay, right? The innovation around, no, no, no we'll just keep your credit card on file. And that was something that it took a while for us to get over, but once you put your credit card up on Amazon and you could do one click, you were hooked, right?
1: You, you know, it's so funny that Russ Roberts brought that up about the first time he loaded his credit card information into Amazon and the uh-huh. trepidation he felt, you know, this could be a real bad idea. Right. That was. I think that was the very first time I bought something off the web was Amazon, and uh-huh. I had the same trepidation, yep. but I did yep. it.
2: Yep. See, it was the equivalent, the, the the equivalent of of getting on an an elevator, right? Right. Yeah. Yes. You know, <laughs> you know people <laughs> people would not get on elevators for years, and it took a while to disseminate that. But once it did, then we could make taller buildings, and and I think that the, and then of course e, e, Uber took from eBay the notion of of the rating system, and now we no longer have to worry about. Uh, almost employee reviews and them being employees because they're not, they're subcontractors. But, what you know, the, we'll weed the bad ones out because if the bad ones get reviews, we're not going to let them drive for us anymore.
1: Right. And that, of course, the customer rating came <laughs> from eBay. And and then you've got GPS and yep. uh, just the whole app ecosystem anyway. And, you know, that whole two-sided market too. You've got to have lots of drivers, but to have lots of drivers, you've got to have lots of users who have downloaded the app and actively use it. So that's you know same dilemma that credit cards face when they launched, right? Mm-hmm. You need lots of merchants, but you also need lots of customers,
2: <laughs> right? But the, I think one of the the big keys to understanding this, and it's it's pointed out in Russ Roberts' podcast. And by the way, that you know rule one of podcasting is never mention somebody else's podcast because they might turn from yours to theirs. But if you're going to not listen to Zola of Enterprise, <laughs> listen to Russ Roberts and Econ, Econ talk. talk, yeah. <laughs> I agree. Um, I agree. But yeah, you know, what a what a great a great podcast, and and just lots of different. And he'd been doing it for since 2006, I think. And anyway, the, the, the but the, the, the whole notion that with 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 uh, with Uber is that th- that the talk about supply creating demand, right? Is that because you can meet that demand? When it's highest, you don't have to hire all of these extra people. You can A taxi company could never compete long term with the model. They, they right. can't do
1: it. It's not as scalable as Uber yep. relying on independent contractors versus employees. And I also think that Rory Sutherland had an interesting insight about Uber that I always think about as well. It's a psychological innovation as maybe more than anything because like he says you know you're not worried anymore well is the cab out there you know i don't see him as he parked around the corner i'll have to go out and take a look and it's raining and i mean you know exactly you know where they are and when they're going to arrive and it it just removes it it puts you back in control and we love that we love that feeling of you know knowing it's like when you're on a uh platform and you're waiting for a train, like maybe at an airport or subway, and it tells you, you know, next car is arriving in whatever, four or five minutes, that feels like a shorter wait than if they don't give you any information.
2: Nope. Yeah, no, great great stuff. I absolutely think that 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 was, and and I think that the the metros and all of those places are copying Uber now because of that because because the expectation is now you will know when when your mode of transportation is going to arrive. So, pretty wild stuff. Anyway, we are up against a break here folks. I want to remind you that you can contact Ron or me by sending an email to ask TSOE At Verisage.com, and that email goes to both of us. And upcoming, of course, we still have there's still time to register for the Verisage Symposium held right here where I am in Allen, Texas, in early November, uh, November 11th to 12th, I believe. It's the Saturday, Sunday, but don't let that throw you off. Some of the greatest minds around professional knowledge firms will be there, including many guests of ours as well as the on previous shows, as well as many of the Verisage Fellows. So we look forward to seeing you there. If you want information on that event go to com slash Verisage, V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Uh, at, after this break, we're going to deal with a listener question from one of our previous shows, but right now, a word from our sponsor. The
3: future
0: of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? Voice America Business Network: The bottom line in business.
4: You are tuned into the Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag #AskTSOE. Now back to the Soul of Enterprise.
2: And we are back live on the Soul of Enterprise. And Ron, we had a listener. I won't say question; it's more of a comment. I'm I'm suspecting that the the person that responded here was d- did not necessarily listen to the entire show, but was just responding to the headline from our previous show, which is "Is the billable hour unethical and unprofessional?" And of course, we we said no, <laughs> but uh, which, we said yes. You know, huge. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, we said yes. It was yes. I'm sorry. Uh, huge what? shock there. Huge shock there. Um, and uh, anyway, so but what was the re- what was the response from our listener? We always like to take any any questions or 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 comments that people make on our show. So go ahead.
1: Yeah. And this was interesting. It's from Russ Johnson. It was off LinkedIn. He said, I appreciate the sensational headline. (laughs) In my opinion, if conducted reasonably, the conversation will be incomplete if it does not discuss risk management, which we totally agree with. Risk has to be part of the discussion in the value conversation. He said hourly billing shifts risk to the customer. Okay. We totally agree with that. The customer is then often more engaged with the provider, Working together to tackle a job as a team, package unit billing shifts risk to the provider. I guess he's saying really fixed prices is shifting risk to the provider. Pressure is then placed on the provider to complete a job scope on time within budget and to the necessary quality standards. However, a customer has less pressure to work with the provider, thereby laying groundwork for an us versus them mentality. A bad apple using either approach can ruin the integrity of an agreement, which I'd certainly agree with. But the, the idea that you're going to get more customer participation if you're charging them by the hour, I think, is specious and uh, runs in the idea that you would cut co- uh, corners on quality. I also believe is specious. It'd be like an airplane, an airline cutting, uh, you know, budget for safety and, and maintenance. I mean, it's not a good strategy to cut your quality uh, below a certain threshold because then you're just asking for your you know, involuntary demise. Um, I, I think this is a big a misreading of, of what happens in the dynamics of risk. If you can lower the risk to the customer by giving a fixed price, you can charge a premium. And just look at the mortgage market. A fixed rate mortgage commands a higher price than a variable rate mortgage because we customers are willing to pay a premium to avoid risk and uncertainty and insurance proves that mortgage market proves it, so i I think this is completely specious That is his idea that if you're charging the customer hourly, they're going to be more involved in the in the project
2: I absolutely one hundred percent agree with this, having run projects for a long time in my career that were billed by the hour, when you do bill by the hour maybe the customer is more involved from one perspective, but because you're billing by the hour and not by a set completion date, let's say, or it, 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 there's there's little incentive for them to, quote, work with you and get work done on time. Because they're like, well, uh, so what? If, we'll, we'll, if we delay you a month, uh, you, you're still going to charge me $200 an hour, uh, whether it's now or a month from now. So what does it matter?
1: Right and and right. i just think yeah focusing the customer on your efforts rather than on the outputs is is always just a big strategic mistake you want to focus them on the outcome and and the transformation that you're providing not all the efforts to get there and and i think your project management piece really is the answer to getting the customer's involvement right because then that's kind of set out in the scope of work that hey i'm going to get so much time of of your internal resources mr customer in order to get this project completed. That's
2: correct. Proper scoping would handle that. And curiously, Ron, if you really think about it, one of the things that we wanted to talk about on this show is is one of the things that you can apply here to make this work. And that is an innovation in pricing that was first done in the car market space, right? But I think make sense in uh, in in software implementations let me just quick explain and set this up and that is that in a car company in germany i believe it was audi they had this innovation in their around their pricing where they had a, a, a one of their cars selling for 34000 euros and scenario 1 is they would take a discount they would give a discount of 3000 euros off the price of the car and then say a trade-in of say seven thousand euros for you know whatever model car they were trading in, making the final price of the car twenty-four thousand dollars, right? Well, what they were they were talking about this with a with a group of behavioral economists, and one of them said, well, I think we can do better. And the executives, of course, said, well, you know, 4,000 4, euros would be better than 3,000 on a discount, but, you know, we don't have 4,000. We can't make that work. He says, no, 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 no. How about if we do it the other way? What if instead of 3,000 euros off the sticker price, we gave them 3,000 euros on top of the trade in price? And they're like, well, um, that's the same thing. He says, well, it's the same thing if you're a, a, a same thing if you're a financial guy. It's not if you're a human being, <laughs> right? right? And he says this it says, yes, it still comes out to twenty four thousand euros. But when they test marketed this, and of course this was in one of Rory Sutherland's great talks, I believe his Zeitgeist talk with it was to Google. He yep. says they the the the. the Method two, which was the adding the, the, the three thousand euros on top of the trade-in price, uh, increased the the number of cars sold by like two hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, that's right? amazing. It is amazing. And so the idea here is, Ron, is to take this and apply it to the problem that was brought up in the previous question from our listener and say, well, what if we were to put – instead of saying, hey, listen, we're going to give you a a discount on the purchase of this software or a discount on this engagement, let's say, right? Right. What if you instead said, what we'll do is we will we will give you some incentive, or in this case, of a case of a software implementation, we will buy your old system from you for $5,000 the day that you go live. Mm-hmm. Right? I love that. So what we'll do is, is we will stroke a check. And I'm not talking about a $5,000 credit on blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. We're going to write them, the customer, back a check to buy sure. their old system from them. Yep. Yep. And this then creates the incentive for them to, to, to participate in and get the job done on time with you and eliminates the problem that – I forget what the guy the gentleman's name was – was talking about in his problem. This, gives the, this creates the incentive for them to work with you just as much as his incentive of if you charge them by the hour.
1: Right, uh, I think that's a, that's a great point. And even though it's not a free market example, Ed, I mean, I have to say, remember the cl- uh, cash for clunkers program that oh, the yeah. government ran? Like, that was that was largely successful, I think, because they used this type of pricing model. You know, we will give you an extra three or four grand, whatever it was, for your your you know piece of junk clunker, and apply it to the purchase of a new car.
2: No, it was absolutely brilliant. It really was brilliant from a from, well, from a policy standpoint, from an actual standpoint. Of course, what happened is is then you know after everybody did that, then there was a a a downturn in automobiles
1: for the next six months after that. It just cannibalized future sales. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's all but, it did. But 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 yeah. it just even I started thinking about trading in because of of this program, and you know I'm supposedly. A rational person, but uh, <laughs> it, it got me thinking. But so, yeah, no, good point. Well, thanks anyway, Russ. and and please go back and listen to the show and and listen to the full uh, you know way that we lay out our conclusion of why we came to the conclusion we did about hourly billing being unethical and unprofessional. Um, Ed, another topic you you bring up in this presentation, and of course, you know, I owe everything to Deirdre Miklaski for changing my mind on this years ago. The importance of language. Yes.
2: Yeah. This is this is really the heart of this presentation. And I know we're going to have we're going to have to uh, deal with a, a break as we go through this, but I think it's still worth 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 talking about. First is a, a quote that I share from Werner Earhart, who is a weird dude, Ron. Very yes. weird. Um, <laughs> But, but he has a really a lot of interesting th- things to say, and of course, Werner Earhart is 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 a subplot in in our favorite one of our favorite TV shows, <laughs> The Americans, yeah, I right? Can't and at an S training, <laughs> there's S seminars, yeah. So I don't want to, we're not gonna well, giving away too many, many spoilers, but if you're an Americans fan out there, you know what we're talking about. Anyway, Earhart said this. He says all transformation is linguistic. If we want to change the culture, we need to change our conversation, and I I, I totally believe this, and so. Mm-hmm. Many different areas, and 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 maybe we'll deal with this when we get back from the break run. But let's talk about the Deirdre McCloskey version of this, which, of course, Deirdre was our first ever guest on the Soul of Enterprise, and we need to put up a link back to that show, uh, probably still in our top three, uh, maybe uh, of of interviews that we've we've ever done. And she says this about the changes that happened in the world from the year 1800 on. She says a big change in the common opinion about markets and innovation is what she claims caused the Industrial Revolution. That is, ideas or rhetoric rhetoric enriched us the cause in other words was language the most human of all our accomplishments that that it is the change in language and give, giving dignity and this is of course from her book the bourgeois dignity to entrepreneurs that caused this the, the, this uh, great enrichment that has taken place from 1800 and continues to this day
1: I know it, it bears repeating that I mean when we had Iran you know usually when economists talk about the the industrial revolution, they talk, they look to material causes. Oh, it was because of oil. It was because of scientific inventions. It was because of, you know, various innovations. It was because of property rights or institutions. And, and she's, she's destroyed every one of those uh, arguments that there's just no way that any one of those, or even a combination of those could provide enough, as she says, oomph, to, to, to see this hockey stick, of, of increase in standard of living and so you're left with this idea that it, it was because we finally treated entrepreneurs and inventors and indeed merchants with dignity rather than treating them as pariahs and cutting off their head when they challenge the status quo and even something as simple as you know not being able to sue somebody who who's a competitor offers a better deal to the marketplace and then you know drives you out of business the old days you know you could maybe run to the king and and get some type of recompense you know re, uh, compensation for that not anymore not not when we finally started to give these entrepreneurs and business people dignity and and that's astonishing if if it can cause that type of a revolution in the worldwide economy what can it do in a business enterprise and no absolutely folks, that's what we'll deal with when we come back on our last segment. In the meantime, uh, give us a shout-out on iTunes. We love to see your reviews out there. Uh, that really helps us, too, is in terms of getting guests. And we have some uh, really interesting guests coming up. I'm really excited, Ed. Uh, uh, through the end of the year, we'll have some uh, interesting guests. And if you want to email Ed or myself, you can do so at asktsoe@versage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Sage.
3: For more information, visit sage.com forward slash U.S. forward slash S.O.E.
0: Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network.
4: You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
2: And here we are back on The Soul of Enterprise. Ron, we were talking in the last segment about the innovation about around language. And how it, it it changed and it really is, in fact, the cause of what we think of as the Industrial Revolution and not technology. And of course, our show here is innovating beyond technology. So let's talk about some innovations in language that that you and I tend to, to suggest to people. And of course, one of our the ones that we, we like best is the notion of not calling anything that you do training, but education. Because after all, what can you charge more for? Training or education? Education clearly is, is a, a word that has more oomph, as Deirdre McCullough Klauski would say. And you can charge a premium price for that. I I think there's no question what that that I would certainly rather be educated than trained, right? Horses and dogs are are trained, but people are
1: educated. I'd rather be educated than anything else. Absolutely. It's like putting strategy in front of consultants. You're automatically, you know, three times more valuable.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. What are some others, Ron? What are some others of your favorites? We have a whole list here. I don't know if we'll get through all of them. So
1: well, you know, I never liked the word fee or billing, right? Or even rate. I mean, why can't we just use price fee conjures up all this negative baggage about government tax, you know, DMV fee, whatever, who, who likes to get bills, who likes to pay bills. Why can't we just use price? It's an innocuous word. it's benign. It brings up no, it conjures up no negative or positive images. It's just, we always say, what's the price, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's a much better word, um, I know you've ranted before. In fact, it's one of your Verisage laws, the word discount, uh, you oh, right. know, how that just cheapens us and, and we should use preferred price or even promotional price. Um, I, I, I like preferred price. I think that's great because it makes people feel special, right? Like Roy likes to say, if you get a discount and not everybody can get it, then it, then it's meaningful, right? If everybody gets <laughs> yeah. a discount, it's not meaningful. Um, and then, of course, the big one is uh, one of the first ones that I thought was really important to change when I took on this topic was the word client to customer. And, boy, did I get a lot of pushback on that, in the, even from my publisher. Yeah. I yeah. Uh, thought that that was just totally bizarre. But I'll tell you, when we when Justin and I did that in our firm, started to call our clients customers, It was a conversation starter. The banker, the insurance agent, the lawyer would look, don't you have client? Don't you mean client? And it just opened up this whole discussion, and they thought it was fascinating, even if they didn't agree with it.
2: Right. Yeah, no, I think that that is a big one. I think because... This this notion of uh, again going back to Werner Erhard that if you want to change the conversation, th- making that change to something as important as the word you use to describe the people that buy from you is an important shift, and it changes what happens in the organization when you start to make that change. I, I mean, I, I I'll I'll say this 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 has this happened inside Sage when our current CEO came in, well, I guess it's about three years ago now. And and said we're, we're no longer a team or or staff where staff sounds like an infection, right? <laughs> or associates or whatever, but we're colleagues, colleagues. And he says and he says if you if you introduce me to someone else, you introduce me not as your CEO but as your sage colleague. Yep. And that we have different roles inside the organization. So it's colleague, colleague, colleague. And I think that that, that that's one thing that Stephen Kelly brought in and has made a significant shift inside the culture uh, at Sage because we are all colleagues with one another. And that's the term we use. And it's, it is ubiquitous now throughout the organization. And that was at the behest of the one person, the new CEO, who said this is what we will do.
1: Right. If you think about Disney, you know they didn't. Uh, Walt insisted not to call them customers; they were guests. Capital G. Tra- <laughs> yeah, and he called his he called his team members or his colleagues. He called them cast members, because he said you're either on stage or off stage. You know, on stage, backstage type of thing. And who who can say that you know Disney doesn't have a a unique and distinct and very strong culture <laughs> that mm-hmm. has stood the test of time? Uh, another one I like that you taught me. Was getting away from change orders to change requests and I've always liked the way you've described it it's kind of like a purchase request you know anybody can request a a new laptop from their employer but that request has to be approved and then it becomes a purchase order and it's the same thing with the change requests and change order and I know some of our colleagues like in different countries don't even like change order what does Matt Toll call it? A, a work re- a work order or work request or something like work that? Work request, I believe, yeah. Yeah, yeah there are different names for it, but I, I think that's another really good one. Um, and then, of course, <laughs> our first show, how could we not mention this, From Efficiency to Effectiveness. Right. Or, and, and we even spent time on that show talking about even a better word, which is efficaciousness, uh, right. which is one of those $5, $10 words that... You know, people have to look up, but it is really a powerful word. Um, and then the other thing I like is time capacity or physical capacity to emotional capacity. And, and I think this is an incredibly dynamic idea, especially for knowledge workers who work with their heads, um, that you safeguard and protect your emotional capacity as well as your, as your physical capacity you know, how many customers you can have.
2: Yeah, and absolutely, and, and by the way, that was that that emotional ca- capacity was taught to me by another Verisage fellow, Daryl Golem, who is officially signed up to be at the Verisage symposium. So again, just a quick reminder out there: the dot com slash Verisage to come and meet Daryl and all these really smart people. But yeah, he's the one who taught me about this 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 concept that he talked about of emotional capacity. It was is simply this: says, Do you ever have that conversation with with your customer at nine a.m. in the morning, and you are done? For the rest of the day, I'm like, uh, yeah, I have. He says, well, that's emotional capacity, right? If you're managing your emotional capacity. You have to be cognizant of the fact that that of when you schedule those things and what you do and what you plan to do the rest of the day when you're going to have a difficult conversation with somebody early in the morning.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and the other part, another way I've heard him explain it as well is, you know, it's, it's one of the reasons his minimum price has shot up so high. Uh, I believe now it's $10,000 to basically step on his metaphorical air, airplane, you know, be a, be a customer in his firm. And mm-hmm. and that's because he said, you know, if they're not willing to pay me that, not only am I not willing to carve out a segment of my emotional capacity to them, think about them in the shower and as I'm driving and all that, but I'd rather spend time at the beach with my kids. He, mm-hmm. after all, does live in San Diego. And, and I thought that that was really powerful because I've noticed – especially with pricing, that nothing raises your prices like being willing to walk away from work <laughs> where, mm-hmm. where you don't feel the need to take on every customer. So I, I think that concept of emotional capacity is so powerful. And you're not going to get to these ideas unless you embrace the language. You have to embrace the language to even be able to start implementing these ideas.
2: Yeah, I, I really do believe that it does. It does begin begin with language, and that has to be something that we we focus on. And it's and it's something that you can inside the organization control, right? I mean, so so many people are always worried about. Well, you know, this, this is beyond our control. Beyond our control. What the what what's happening in the marketplace? What's happening with our competitors? What's happening with other with uh, with with our customers out, outside us? And yes, that's all well and good. But the language you use inside your organization is absolutely something you can control
1: well ed this has been fantastic i i think this is such a great topic and there's so much more to say about it because innovation does go way beyond technology but folks we hope we gave you some food for thought so ed what's on store for next week
2: Uh, next week ron we're going to talk about don't don't shy away we're going to make this interesting folks price signaling and antitrust
1: Oh, boy, that sounds completely dull, but it won't be, folks, not on the Soul of Enterprise. <laughs> so, Ed, I look forward to it, and I'll see you in 167 hours. <laughs> this has been the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern. In the meantime, check out our show notes at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll post full show notes. Uh, We'll even include Ed's slide deck from one of his presentations on this topic, along with all the other resources that we mentioned. And also, if you want to contact Ed or myself, you can do so at at asktsoe.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.